This podcast is dedicated to the memory of Ted Edward Keenan, who passed away in June 2021 at the age of 90. He was a clockmaker and horologist whose high standards of craftsmanship and precision were an inspiration to his son. Welcome to Rosin the Bow, an audio journey through the world of the violin family. I'm Joe McHugh, and back in 2017, my wife Paul and I traveled to Ireland, where we met violin maker Mark Keenan. Mark's studio was located in the restored Belmont Industrial Flour Mill in County Offaly, which is located in the Midlands of that fair isle. Here, then, is that interview. So tell me about your family. The Keenan family, uh, I don't know very much about. That's the, the very odd thing about my family is uh, growing up as a child, um, I really only interacted with my mother's side because my father, he was an only child and his his father, my grandfather, um, died very shortly after my great-grandfather. Now, okay, I probably never would have wound up meeting my great-grandfather had he lived. He'd want to have been enormously old, but... Um, the point is that uh, without both those men in his lives, um, he didn't um, get any hand-me-down stories um, and grew up without a father. So um, that was unfortunate, to say the least, obviously. But it meant that he didn't. I didn't have any aunts or uncles on that side of the family directly. Um, all the rest of the family on the Keenan side were second cousins and, you know, further removed. So... I didn't grow up with, them, up with any of them in my life. It was always my mother's side of the family who were Mulvaney's and they had a picture framing shop and um, actually still do uh, have an, an art business, um, gallery business and that uh, elsewhere in the country. But so the, the Keenan side is always this intriguing story, but who, who obviously who stuck out most from the Keenans was this violin maker. And um, it just seemed very sort of a romantic thing to do. Um, a lot of people kind of experience that when they encounter violin ma- making, they think of it as being that. I mean, yes, it is in, in many respects, but for, um, you know, someone like myself growing up um, who maybe had an artistic leaning and a leaning towards being creative, but had that hadn't become, um, uh, hadn't become, hadn't been cultivated or, nourished through the education system of the time um it, it's something it's something that appealed to me so as many when when did you first hear that you had this great grandfather i oh, mean that he was yeah. a violin maker yeah well from a very early age um for sure yeah um my father wouldn't have spoken much about his family and um, my father's still alive and and even to the day he doesn't speak much about his family um his mother was ill a lot the, for a lot of the time when he was young as well so um, it's a painful thing for people to go through. And this was a Dublin family? That would have been in Dublin, yeah. yeah, yeah. And that's where he made the violins? It, it was. Now, he would have... Keenan is a, a Northern Irish name, or, you know, from Ulster. Um, but in most likely, they would have been... There were a lot of occasions in Irish history when <laughs> things weren't going so well, and people got... 
uh, either evicted off land or there'd be some crisis, the plantations of Ulster or something like that. And families would, you know, sort of travel through the countryside. They found somewhere to live and settle. And one group settled, um, seemed to have settled in the Meath area, which is not too far from Dublin, next door county. And um, uh, his parents, so my great-great-grandparents, moved to Dublin at some stage in the mid-1800s, and that's where he was born. So they would have been a Catholic family coming yeah, down from Ulster? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that's where all the tensions well, begin to... There, there certainly are, are and have been over the years, <laughs> we know that, um, in modern history, but um, it was the largely, you know, the governing factor in the in social history in Ireland for the last you know, four or five hundred years. So um, <laughs> that's a different story. It doesn't, people don't, I certainly don't think along those lines really. I mean, history is history. I, I don't entwine that with my consciousness as, uh, you know, in, in the modern period. It's not something that I, I despise sectarianism, and most people do. And we have a republic here, and it's generally um, democratic and, um, you know, we don't like to uh, involve ourselves in that kind of anything. So, but, but yes, I mean, there, are, there is that history of, of division and for various reasons, yes, people would be misplaced, but then like become, become misplaced for lots of other reasons too. Economic factors encourage people to move away from their home areas and that's so, and, you know, that, that, that does have a bearing too. You seem to have a, a, a very good grasp of history because we, we've talked before this, we set up for the interview. Just your own speculation, and it may just be speculation since you had so few stories that came down to you. What do you think his experience was like at the time in which he was trying to make violins? Because you showed me he's listed in a book of, of it says British violin mm. makers. Of course, then Ireland was part of the British Empire. Yeah. What do you? How do you think he came to that, and what his experience was making violins? Well, I don't know. Um, for instance, he although he made violins, uh, his profession was wheelwright, and he worked for a company in Dublin um, that obviously made wheels. But uh, we almost underestimate in this modern era how important wheels were <laughs> in those days, because they would have been for horse-drawn carts. And um, they were all made by hand, uh, effectively. I mean, OK, it might have been industrialised, but uh, it wasn't like the wheels in our Ford that are stamped out by a machine. Um, it was a, a very serious craft. And they would make wheels for different types of vehicles and carts and whatnot. So um, that was very involved. And uh, he was, I think, by the age of 20, he was managing 60 or so craftsman working in this factory so he was I think he was a very high flyer for a man of his period um, to have the time to do that um, raise a family and I think he had five or six children that lived um, and still find the time to make violins I, I think the house he lived in which was in a fairly poor part of the city at the time, um, by our standards now, but it was probably a sort of lower middle class area. Um, it was near the docklands of the city, which would have been a very, very busy bit part of the country, uh, you know, of the city. And um, they, uh, but 
he he had a I think an old railway cart. A railway line ran at the back of the house, and I think there was a, an old railway cart or a part of one or something that maybe the top wooden structure part, you know, that had been put in as a shed down the end of the garden. So I think that's where he did the making um, of the violins, which is kind of odd to picture, but he apparently did. Um, I don't know very much else about him in terms of his life on on the spot. Um, I know about some of the history of his violin-making work. Um, He made a couple of fairly rustic-looking violins, um, up until the time of World War One. Now, he got a little bit better. I have a violin, I haven't shown you yet, but um, he made it for a competition run by the Royal Dublin Society. Now, it wouldn't have been a violin-making competition per se, it would have been a craft competition, and probably people were entering all sorts of different items. But I think there was a section at least for some of the time, based on, on, on uh, musical instruments. So you might have been up against a button accordion maker or God knows what, I don't know. Um, but he started to win that. Um, and I think he first won it in 1912. Now, you wouldn't maybe know as an American, or the American audience might know, but 1912 in Dublin was an absolutely ghastly period of our history. Um Dublin probably had the biggest slums in the whole of Europe. Uh, they were fairly atrocious. Uh, there were lots of old Georgian buildings that had fallen into disuse or, or poor or state of repair. Um, they'd been built in Georgian times, um, late 1700s. But with the Act of the Union, which uh, incorporated the Kingdom of Ireland and the Kingdom of Britain together under one um, one parliament, which is Westminster, um, that that impoverished actually the people that it was aimed to protect, which was the the the, the Protestant community that was the backbone of business and uh, the upper echelons of society at the time, um, because. At that time, you had the penal laws as well. I'm going on too much, but <laughs> I'm digressing. But the, the penal laws meant that uh, Catholics had less rights to property and and um, voting and the like, because Ireland had its own parliament at the time. So, And when this occurred, what year was this? This was in uh, 1801, I think, 1800, 1801. Um, there'd been the famous rebellion of the 1798, which was to follow in the footsteps of the French Revolution and the American Revolution. of in- This is where the Irish were waiting for the French to arrive. Well, yes, it is. And, um, and they never appeared. Well, few enough of them. <laughs> 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 they were busy. Um, but the... Before, I mean, uh, lots of people probably argue about my history, but the, the upshot was that uh, Ireland despite they, they thought they'd consolidate the two kingdoms and um, diminish the risk of rebellion by um, centralizing uh, government directly from London okay so that backfired because it, it created a whole there, there were, it meant that Irish businesses which were run mostly by the Protestants um, then were in direct competition with British businesses and despite the fact that they had uh, political affinities for one another it, it was an economic disaster so a lot of those houses fell into disrepair Dublin became very very poor and um, uh, these 
um, uh, houses became the slums uh, of Dublin. Um, so this is 100 years later, 1912, we're placing yeah, this. Yeah. So 1912, you're talking maybe 100 years later. Yeah. This, this process of people being impoverished. Um, a city it came to a head. Came to a head. Um, it came to a head in that the um, trade unions uh, were formed. Um, there was a large strike. There were a number of strikes, and then that led to what they call a lockout, which is a kind of a reverse strike. The employers don't let you into work uh, if you're in the union. So that means don't get pay. So pe- people were practically starving, if not actually starving, and um, no income. And they were living in these dreadful slums, which were rife with tuberculosis and uh, all sorts of diseases. Um, and the result was that there were major riots in Dublin. But I always think it's not funny, but strange and remarkable, but that my great-grandfather was able to make in the midst of all this uh, violins and not to be distracted because they must have been very tough times, um, especially with his actual job. Um, I, I don't know what side he would have taken or <laughs> or anything like that. If he got but, locked out. Right? But, well, I don't know, but even if he was a manager, if they did lock out staff, then that would have meant the business would have been, maybe that explains where he got all the time from. Um, <laughs> but yeah, they, they were tough times. Um, for So for somebody, I think in that period to, to focus on something as artistic making, as making a violin um, and demanding is, is quite amazing. How do you think he got hold of the, the violins to look at, to understand the, the well, patterning, all the things that you, mm, violin makers, spend a great deal yeah, of time? Yeah. Well, if you look at two violins I have, one of them is very rustic, and then the next one, which is literally the one he made next, uh, was made in 1912 amidst all the riots of, of Dublin. Um, and then that, that was a Guarneri model. Now, he said in that he used to go and visit backstage if, if any v- event was going on. He'd, he'd um, you know, a concert and maybe a visiting violinist. He'd um, go and try and interview the violin and have a look at it and get impressions of it. Now, I, I doubt he would have had the time to make templates, obviously, if you know the guy is just taking it out of his case to show him. He probably wouldn't have time to do that. But he was he was lucky. Um, when World War Two broke out, or World War One broke out, I should say, um, the uh, national concert of the time was run by the Royal Irish Academy of Music. And the lead player in that orchestra uh, violinist was a man called Joshua Watson. Now, I don't really know anything about him, but he had a Stradivarius. And when he uh, enlisted to become a captain in the British Army to fight in France, he left his Stradivarius with another man, who was a man called Cathcart. And he seemed to have been a a well-to-do businessman, but he was also a violin enthusiast. And... At some stage, Edward Keenan, my great-grandfather, would have maybe met him somewhere along the line um, and shared ideas with this Cathcart chap. And then what happened in the end was was when the, the Stradivarius came into his household for safekeeping, then Edward got the chance to, to have a really good look at the Stradivarius and made, you know, uh, templates and took measurements and looked at the stylistic 
new ones so that you need to focus on. So you started making much better violins after that. And, um, you know, some of them genuinely are, you know, quite nice um, Strad models. So I have seen some of them. I don't own one, but uh, there's one in the National Museum of Ireland in Dublin. Now, it's not on display, but it's in their um, collection. So, um, yeah, it's nice that he's had some recognition on that way. I love this idea of of this physical object mm. coming into someone's world and then leading to this quantum jump in quality and understanding about mm. the craft. Yeah. Well, um, if you didn't get the chance to be a, a, an apprentice violin maker um, and have all the secrets passed on to you, <laughs> um, it's going to be an uphill struggle. Um, I mean, I've been lucky... I just went to college for um, three or four years and, you know, you'll have a fairly good education. If you're to try and gain all that information without meeting your tutors and, and who are also professional violin makers. So you get a feel for not just the actual act of making a violin, but you also get a lot of uh, useful anecdotal information about what it is to be like to be a violin maker to make it into a business that you can survive um, and that's important you know a lot of people who do do violin making maybe come at it from the angle of a hobby and you know they're they're having a great time doing the violin making they maybe make very very good violins but uh, they'll make, never make it into a business um, it's still that romantic connection with the esoteric end of the violin making thing, which is really almost nothing to do with selling violins. <laughs> uh, how old was your great-grandfather when he passed away? Yeah, dreadfully young. Um, by our standards, anyway, he's 57. So he died in 1933, and it was just at that point when he had, he'd signed the lease on a shop in Dublin. Proper was, violin shop. Well, it was, we don't know much about it. it it's a... Uh, it was an upstairs premises in a good part of town, and um, that's all we know. But he, he um, took ill. Uh, God knows what was wrong with him. He had some sort of uh, incident with um, his intestines <laughs> and fell, collapsed in the street and was taken to hospital and they operated. And, you know, it was probably something like an ulcer or something probably very simple that would be sorted out nowadays, but... Um, they operated on him and it wasn't a success. He, d he died during the operation. So, sad. How did the two violins come into your possession? Uh, one had remained in the family that was the one from 1912. And I think that was his 11th or 12th, I think 11th instrument he made. Um, I mean, he made probably making very few, probably maybe one a year, probably more than me. But they anyway, the upshot was that <laughs> he... Um, he he, um, yeah, he left that in the family. Do you and know that, why or how that happened? Was no, there anybody playing? No, no it was used by a cousin of my father, hmm. um, a lady called Kay. Um, what her, her married name was, I've forgotten now. But the, um, she sadly passed away a few years ago and she left it to my father and my father gave it to me, so... It's a nice violin, but I, I don't have it set up all that terribly well. I have to revisit it and <laughs> do a better job. The other one, it came 
to me via a man um, who lives not too far away, uh, next county, and he he just wanted to sell it to raise a little bit of cash. And he'd been given it um, by some nuns, I think, because he was. They thought he had a, you know, showed some promise when he was a child, and he was going to their school. So, um, and this is the more him. rustic instrument. It's the more rustic instrument. Yeah. Um, but, but it's but, great to have it. Oh, it is absolutely. But and it's all the more curious that it was the one he made exactly before the one I have. So, um, number nine and or number 10 and number 11, I think. And you can see this jump in quality. Yeah. yeah that's that's so, cool. Yeah, yeah. Any of the tools come to you? No. Ah. Nothing else, really. Um, other members of the family, and these are all, as I explained, that they're kind of removed by, you know, one to cousins and that. They, um, we really don't know what happened. There's very little stuff. Um a few few bits and pieces but I, you have to understand as well it, when someone would die in those days it, it wouldn't be uncommon to just sell all their property to pay for a funeral um, you know or feed the family uh, so it, it's not as with a sudden death like that um, yeah they, they I mean what would they have done with loads of maple and everything I mean they probably just sold it to another violin maker yeah, or little yeah. planes and those yeah, kinds of Yeah, all that. That's tools. so Because I imagine yeah. he made a number of his own tools. Oh, I'd say he did, yeah. Yeah, I'd say so, yeah. So you were born when and where and what date? I can't remember. I was, uh-huh. <laughs> I was born in 1965. So, um, and this was where? Oh, in Dublin, yeah, yeah. Um, my father, as I mentioned, he was the third Edward. Um, I'm Mark Edward, and... Uh, yeah, I have two elder sisters, I have a younger brother. My dad worked in the motor industry, um, uh, in sales mostly, and then advertising. Um, he worked for a garage that's uh, the distributorship for Vauxhall and Bedford, um, which were British makes of vehicle, but owned by General Motors. And um, uh, what else did they sell? Um, well... I think if you wanted to buy a Chevrolet in Ireland at the time, um, you, you'd have to go to them. So, But he worked with them. And then they got overtaken by an insurance company. And they were doing fine, but the insurance company wasn't. So <laughs> that went to the wall um, in a big political scandal as well. And it, it was all wound up. So he actually took up um, his hobby, which was, or his principal interest, which was anti-clock restoration. And um, he worked at that at home. He converted the attic space in the house and um, took to repairing these tick-tock antique clocks, um, grandfather clocks, or more correctly, as they're called, um, long-case clocks, uh, Vienna regulators, American and Sonia wall clocks, things like that. And um, although he's retired and he's still alive, thank God, uh, my brother has a business. So he he's he's also based down the countryside now in Carrick and Shannon and um, runs his business there. So that's still in the family. We have a family clock that came down to me through my grandparents. And just in the last six months, we've been involved in a process. It's an old Chelsea um, clock, uh, I guess, um, 
like a mariner's clock, or I, I don't want to be the word for it, but a kind of a sea clock. Yeah, okay. What the term would be. But anyhow, I've been in... Well, if it's a very good one, it's a ship's chronometer. Um, if it was actually meant to be on a ship? So no, it, no, no, I don't no, think no, so. No. But the, the, okay. I don't believe so. But, you know, no. the chi- I, I know the uh, the clock repair fell in our town. We've had to go back and forth because there was a small wheel and it was slightly um, bent or something. We've realized that's the problem. So he's had to find the part and the Chelsea factory has burned down so the parts aren't available from them you have to it gets more complicated mm. i spent a lot of time going back to this shop getting this clock kind of sorted and i see a, a real parallel between this again this old world uh, skill set that goes back yeah. with a great respect for the history and the uh, ingenuity that goes into making clocks and the making of violins, mm. and both being so involved with the concept of time, the performance of music and time. It, it, That's it interesting. Yeah, I hadn't me. thought of that. Yeah. 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 Um, and the heartbeat. Mm-hmm. Our, other, our other clock that's going all the time. So tell Toasted. me your story. Yeah. So, um, yeah, well, my brother Maris, he, he took that part of the business. He's my younger brother, by the way. And... Um, well, I had to start all over again for... I had left school with a very poor academic result. Um, and we were talking about that earlier. Yeah. What was that about? Because I had a similar experience. And you were taught by the Christian brothers, I guess. Yeah, I was. Yeah. So what was that all about? Well, I mean, it was a good school. Um, but it had an antiquated sort of way of looking at things and doing things. I mean, they tried changing. I mean, we were leaving school just as, you know, the first home computers were coming out. So I suppose we were caught between two worlds, the sort of old world where you had things like learning by rote. And, you know, if you're learning a language, it was all just about the grammar and writing stuff. It wasn't about communication or, you know, the broader subjects. It was it was really just a way of proving that you can learn things and do things so that when you go and do a job, you can learn things and do things. Um, it wasn't really geared for anybody who had a different outlook. Um, it, it wasn't, if, if you wanted to do something with your hands, you were expected to go to a technical college, but that would have been for, um, you know, the more um, industrial sort of skill sets like carpentry or being a machinist, uh, you know, um, that, that kind, kind of thing. thing yeah. Um, but uh, yes, as as a, as a sort of lower middle class person, <laughs> um, you were expected to go into to um, you know insurance or banking or the civil service or you know some job like that. Uh, or, you know, or academic world. You you weren't really supposed to work with your hands or do something like that. And there was no music, so they weren't going to teach you music. Um, now. I was just unlucky. There, there were the boys behind me, a year behind me, they, they had the chance to do art and music, but um, we didn't. And there was no such thing as a school orchestra or, you know, art classes. So we di- I didn't do any of that. Um, so you didn't, you didn't thrive in this I didn't. No, I didn't. And uh, um, sort of making me rebel, as maybe <laughs> other people do, <laughs> um, I didn't. I kind of went in on myself and was became a little bit too introverted and not enough self-confidence. <laughs> so, um, actually, no self-confidence. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it's terrible when you think about it. But, um, 
yeah, you, you leave school like that. Um, I wound up working in the bar trade, which is okay. It's good fun, but very hard work. Um, you know, serving up pints of Guinness to people in a, in a pub for 13 years. <laughs> and so you, can, you know how to draw a good pint. Yeah, I did, I think, yeah. Yeah, right. I worked in an old world pub. Um, if ever you get to the Gravediggers in Glasnevin, um, that, that's a, a pub that's been in the Kavanaugh family for since 1833 or something. So, um, yeah, if, if you get around there, um, that, that's uh, an interesting part of my distant past. But it's like a, a life time ago to me now at this stage. Um, I did that for, what would I say, 13 years, and then thinking I should try and get an office job that would make me normal. <laughs> so I went working for an insurance broker's and um, I think I ruined a number of people's lives. <laughs> I, I know I didn't, but I, it, I was dreadful at it. I was I'd, I went from being, um, you know, a square peg in the round hole to I, I don't know what. Uh, <laughs> it was dreadful. I was dreadful. So I remember being in a bookshop in Dublin, and I just came across a book about violin making. And I didn't even bother buying it, but I had I glanced through it, and um, I suppose I probably had from not even the stories because there were no stories of about my great grandfather, but just the fact that I I knew he existed and I knew that violin making is hard, but that kind of probably put it on a pedestal in my head um, that it was almost impossible. So um, when I saw this book and you know there were diagrams and pictures, and I said, well. Doesn't look necessarily too hard. Maybe, maybe I'll I'll um, investigate this and see if I can <laughs> do. The, I, I didn't tell anybody. Um, I got in touch with the violin maker, um, uh, a certain Michael de Hook, who's a Dutchman, but he worked, as I happen to know, I think he worked in London for many years with one of my tutors. Later on, man had become a tutor. Um, and then he moved to Dublin for whatever his own personal reasons are. I have no idea. But I went to visit him. He he was working in, uh, I still think he does. He works in um, a craft centre in Dublin city centre. So he, I went to see him, got talking to him. He told me about the course in England. And um seemed like a good idea. I applied for the course. Um, I didn't have enough woodworking experience. So when I Got in there, they put me in the foundation year, which um, introduced you to, you know, working with the hand tools that you expect, you know, the chisels and gouges and knives and little thumb planes and things. And lots of time spent on learning how to sharpen. Yeah. yeah. Surprisingly yeah. amount. Yeah. Maybe not enough, oddly enough, but it is, yeah, that, uh, yeah, that would be really one of the most important skills you, you'd you um, can benefit from. Yeah, absolutely. And this school is the Newark School? The Newark School of Violin Making, which is in Nottinghamshire. Now, in at that time, it was under the auspices of the local education authority, which um, had the college together with, um, although it had a separate building in a different location in the town, it was with, um, I think, the Nottingham and Sherwood School of Further Education or something like that. But um, now it's under Lincoln University, I think. Um, 
which is uh, a nearby uh, city. So, so there's yeah. a romance to the American era immediately uh, with Sherwood, Nottingham. Oh yeah, yeah, it's 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 Robin, um, it's Robin Hood country. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, uh, an industrial area, really, and famous for its coal mines. Um, very interesting in its own way, but uh, we were there for one reason. And the blinkers were on. We were <laughs> we were fully focused on violin making, and um, it was great because it has a very good international reputation. And I never talk it down. I don't only talk it up. You, when you are there, you're mixing with French and German um, and American and Canadian and people from all over the world. And uh, there's a great sense of camaraderie between the students. Um, so you don't feel like you're in competition with the stu- other students. You're, you're, you actually wind up helping each other a lot of the time and exchanging ideas, which is very good. And you, you form very good um, relationships that, in, in some cases with me, have turned into business relationships later on. So um, that's really beneficial. And uh, it kind of you know, opens the whole thing up to you. Uh, there, there are less secrets. There's, there's less of the, the... I think that's more of a myth than reality, this idea that uh, the violin maker keeps all these secrets of his varnish and the special little techniques to well, do this. Yeah, you still keep a few, but... Um, are you, doing? you know, <laughs> it's just mostly because you'd be ashamed to tell people what you really do. <laughs> Yeah, using super glue or something. Uh, well, no, no, I would draw the line at that. But um, uh, no, I mean, people can compliment you about something, um, you know, some aspect of your work. And you'll certainly take that very well, hopefully. Um, but, you know, there might not be as much cracked up to, you know, there could be a lot of, you know, some things are actually quite simple to do, if you know how. That's the, the ultimate truth. Um what did your dad think of this, and your mom? Oh, uh, yeah, but your yeah. dad, of course, comes from this family. Yeah. When you, after uh, working for the insurance, as an insurance broker, and then before that in the bar trade, and you say to him, I'm off, still trying to find my way in the world. Yeah. Uh, and you say, I'm going to now learn how to make violins. Yeah. Did he connect this to his, oh, yeah, his absolutely. grandfather? Yeah. yeah, I don't think he took it as a sort of compliment to his family heritage. Um and it is a motivation for me. Um, I mean, it's not an artificial motivation. I'm genuinely interested in the violin, absolutely. Um, but and you know, people say it's it's in your blood or something. You know, yeah, well, the blood will tell know. idea. I don't know if that's true, but I wouldn't rule out the possibility that there are artistic genes. Um, you know, and and look what happens if you're if you're in the wrong job. You know, you you won't perform well at it, or you're less likely to. Um, I mean, the people who do, who are insurance brokers, or <laughs> you know, they might do their job well because they're really geared for for being really good administrators, and the world needs that. Um, so, I you know, people, and I have encountered it, people who say, you know, treat themselves as if they're somehow special. Um, and, you know, think, oh, I wouldn't do that kind of job. I'm a craftsman or, you know, I I, I think that's very wrong. Um, you know, it, it, the world needs all sorts of different people to do different jobs. And um, 
you know, people on the other hand, then people look up to, you know, they think, well, wow, you're a violin maker. Okay, it's a nice job. It's, it's an interesting job. Um, lots of other jobs are very interesting. And if they're not, they might be a lot more important. Um, you know, nobody's going to die of starvation if I don't make a violin. Nobody's, you know, uh, it's not critical to the function of the world. Now, it might be on a different level, but, you know, it's not a, a frontline service I'm operating here. I'm not doing brain surgery or something. Um, so, you know, other people in other jobs, uh, that's important to respect their heritage and tradition and their, you know, their calling in life um, or whatever they do. Well, there is a sensitivity, I would think, you've, you develop in this work, working with wood, which is a, a living substance or was came from a living yeah, organism. We, we killed it. Oh. <laughs> we chop it down and well, cut it up. Yeah, yeah, yeah I know. <laughs> oh, that's terrible. Yeah, it is. It is. All right. Well, where do we go from there? All right. After the murder is done, uh, you've got this piece of wood and uh, you, you've got to understand what the wood is, that piece mm. of wood. And how it wants to be worked, which yeah. way it grain, its grain runs. Yeah. And you might, in fact, say, no, I'm going to put this aside. It'll never make an instrument or it'll make a great viola or if it's large enough, maybe a cello. But you're, you're working on it. It'll, it'll make this model Guarneri, but wouldn't make a good Strat, um, let's say pattern. Mm. So you're reading the wood, I would think, as a, as a maker. And much in life, I think, as we try to find that that calling, our calling, uh, you know, we're trying to read the grain, as it were, yeah, in our own yeah, lives yeah, yeah. and work with it mm. and not feel you're special because you happen to go this way or that way. Mm. But if you're in the wrong place, you feel it. It's just a sense. Well, I'm doing this work. It's providing for my family, let's say, but I haven't found the place I'm most naturally made for. I, I, well, you know, I, I, that's how I think about things. I, I think that... Um, well, a very popular book in the United States uh, for a while, and I think it's a brilliant uh, title, is called Shop Class as Soul Craft. And it was written by this very bright guy who got his doctorate in political philosophy at the University of Chicago, which is not a small thing to accomplish. Went off to a think tank around Washington, D.C., thought, mm. okay, this is what it's all about. You know, I've learned to think. You know, we're talking about the Christian brothers. I've mm. learned this mm. trick of how to make my brain do this thing. And I can do it at a pretty high level. And then suddenly realized it's totally unsatisfying to me. And so he went off and started a motorcycle repair business in Richmond, Virginia. And then eventually he wrote this book. And uh, really bemoaning the fact that we have so little respect for these uh, physical vocations, or, or what would I say, you know, these skill sets that we bring to things in life, like plumbing, you know, electrical mm. work, uh, motorcycle repair, or violin making, that this, these can be very satisfying lives, where he feels the educational system in America, so, so, yeah, 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 but of course, the real important work is this academic path and getting up into the abstract world, where you make a lot of money for very abstract things. You can push some numbers around right now on, on Wall mm. Street in ways that almost no one understands. Mm. Sell a few derivatives, you know, move a little over here, over there, and walk away with enormous um, income from that kind of work. And everyone thinking, well, you must be a genius. Uh, you must be very bright. And he, he just takes that all to task in this book. 
But the word he uses, which I really like, is that the soul craft, shop class as soul craft, that we find something that's essential to the soul in this kind of work. Yeah, well, I think I think people want to contribute to the society, don't they? Um, and there might be different ways. I mean, you might you might have lots of old money and contribute by charity or something, or maybe you never worked a day in your life, but you still fit in somehow. So there's lots of ways of of of, of engaging with the world around you. But the principal way we mostly do it is through our work that we get paid for. Um, and if we're good at our job, we'll get paid well, or at least that's the way it's supposed to work. And that means then you're the right person for that job. So it's rewarding yourself and you're rewarding society. Um, I can see what, what it, what's made me think about this. And, uh, well, there's lots of reasons why I'd be thinking about this, but um, when I have encountered it is that people do fall between the floorboards and the cracks and they don't make it. And not only is that a pity for them, but it's a pity for society because when they fall through, there's drug abuse, there's alcohol abuse, there's crime. And society has to then pay for all that. And those people have lost their lives in, in, in you know, at least the soul of their lives. And they've never had the chance. Um, so, yeah, finding the, the right job and encouraging people to find something that they enjoy and do well and can become functional at, uh, that is a very important thing in society. I think it's an act of imagination that we sort mm. of lack structurally anymore. We, we almost don't allow, you know, who would have thought, I mean, I never thought way back when I was coming out of college or left college mm. that I'd ever be a storyteller or that I would do radio work, or that I would play the fiddle. Yeah, well, I certainly no never thought I'd be a fiddle maker. Yeah. yeah, no one yeah, would have yeah. ever thought to mention mm, that to me. Mm. You know, your, your, your set of options seem to be fairly narrow. Mm. And uh, I think we could do better right now, and need to with automation coming on so yeah, fast, yeah. which is really the Artificial story of our Artificial intelligence. Age. And, yeah. Yeah. yeah, I think, and if we really do... Uh, link a person's value, even they link their value to the job they do and the money they receive for doing that job, and those jobs simply don't exist in the way that they have existed. We have to use an enormous amount of imagination to understand how human beings can live and have meaningful lives and fulfilling lives. Mm. And I think often the arts really are an area that this is, is possible for people because they're very satisfying experiences. But often we don't have those programs in the schools. They're considered secondary or you know peripheral, yeah. and when budgets get yeah. tight, psh, yeah. out the door they go. Mm. And that's the very skills you want to teach people so that if they don't have this job or may don't have a job for three years as they try to understand what they're going to do, mm. but they have this artistic thing they can do that is just inherently satisfying to do. It's a satisfying yeah. experience. Yeah. So I, I would imagine, I'm certainly not trying to put words in your mouth, that when you're making violins, you're thinking, how can I sell this violin? Because I need to sell it, you know, to keep the lights on and the whole thing going. Yeah. But the other part of it is when that anxiety, you know, like the tides, you know, they come and go, that anxiety, I find. And suddenly you're just doing the work and you're just thrilled to do it. And it's satisfying in itself. Yeah, I mean, it, yeah, I mean the, the core element for violin makers to be creative and 
do so within certain parameters so that it's, it's still a violin, but it's going to be unique to that maker. Um, no matter how bad or good they are, they're going to, it's going to be unique in some way. Um, but you still want to make it as, as perfectly as possible. And, you know, so that it will tick all the boxes and, you know. But you're also playing on a larger uh, stage, as it were, which I think some people understand that and they need to do that and other people don't. I, I'm going through Ireland. Hmm. And I go through all these small towns and there's Maloney's Butcher and there's Doyle's, you know, this or sweater shop or whatever. And I see people who are probably very skilled at what they do. We saw a fellow thatching a roof the other day, oh, yeah, uh, which we had yeah, not yeah. seen. And we stopped and talked to him for a while. And he's got this skill set that uh, not many people have anymore mm. and spends a lot of time, does a wonderful job. But it's a local skill for a local community. And people in that community know the good butchers versus the not as good a butcher, you know. And, and so they're, they're known and uh, respected within this small community. Violin making is this much larger world. Once you're a violin maker, a serious violin maker, then you're thinking, well, my violin might wind up in Italy one year or in the United States, and somebody's going to know that this was my violin, that I was a maker at this time in history. It's just on a larger stage. Does that make sense, what I'm saying? Yeah, it does, and it's a motivation. Um, I like to think one of my fiddles will wind up in a space colony somewhere on the far side of Mars or somewhere like that. <laughs> if it doesn't have any loss getting to Mars, right? <laughs> um, it mightn't be this year, but uh, you know. Um, but you can toy with ideas like that. But I mean, that's that that you know. You might make a hundred violins, and maybe ninety-nine of them will get thrown in the bin or something, I don't know. <laughs> no, but they do exist over a period yeah, of time. Yeah. That's I mean, the that, cool that, part. That is, well, I think if you, that is your aim. You're trying to make an instrument that's going to be so good that it will appeal to people, that it will last. And I think that is important. Um, it is a way of expressing that uh, a human being is, is capable of doing something that's lasting. Um, now, okay, that might sound like I'm trying to be self-justifying or I have airs and graces about myself or something, but um, the violin, if you look at the repertoire of music, I mean, we're maybe both folk players. I'm sure you're way better than me <laughs> you've heard me play. But like when you do see somebody who's like a virtuoso classical player and the things they can do with a really good violin, it is... It is Probably, at least in my opinion, um, you know, it's a pinnacle of human achievement. That's what is going on there. So someone playing the cadenza for Tchaikovsky's Violin Concerto, there's so few people who can do that and do it well that it's like being an Olympic runner or gold medalist and maybe even Ansem. Um it's an expression of their their physical t ability, their mental ability. And then they have the instrument, which isn't just the instrument. There's also a really good bow involved. Um, and that's another subject you'll have to interview some Archetia about. But the, um, and the violin itself might be, a, a, you know, a, a legacy violin from 
Cremona, and, and it could be worth, I mean, regardless of what it's worth, but like at the same time, it could be worth, you know, 20 million. So, or it could be your violin. Well, maybe, but who knows? Well, I mean, who knows? Why not? I mean, but let's face it. Like, isn't that what we're I'm not, not going to put myself in the same class as Antonio yeah, no, no, Stradivari. I, I got that. Yeah, right. No, no, no <laughs> false modesty, but I mean, but, th- this is you know, it's why not? I mean, this is you're trying this to aspire to it. Yeah, right? yeah. It's the aspiration. Mm-hmm. I think that's yeah. great. And I and again, I think the word. I, I'm surprised. I'm coming back to it over and over in this interview. But imagination. Why not? Why not imagine? this as a possibility and uh, it may or happen, it may not happen, but mm-hmm. it's possible. Yeah, well, I mean, society is full of these dilemmas. I suppose it's a political thing. Um, probably don't want to get too involved in politics. I won't mention any names either side of the Atlantic. I don't mind at But all. I mean, in our country, we, well, <laughs> well, for instance, take, take our health service here in Ireland. Um, it has its deficiencies, and most health services around the world do have their deficiencies. It's an enormously complicated um, affair, looking after people with lots of very serious health problems. There's never the budget to, to meet all their demands and things like that. So um, there's always compromises. But at the same time, I would like to think that, again, like you say, imagination. People are afraid to express their imagination. And that's, that's, I think, uh, a big stumbling block for people in the world. So, yeah, <laughs> why are the arts important? That's maybe one reason I would say the arts are important, whether it's painting or violin making or anything else, and not just arts, but crafts, creativity. When people are engaged in creativity, they're, they're expressing um, imagination. And there's no reason why politicians or civil servants or people in top industries they also need to have imagination and a lot of them do I mean I think we have seen some I mean I can pull my smartphone out of my pocket here and it's a remarkable piece of scientific uh, endeavor now it's still a phone (laughs) but it it is if you show that to my dad or my great-grandfather I mean he'd think we'd come from outer space um, right, and, you it, know, and in it, some it, circles, we we'll, we hold up somebody like Steve Jobs, yeah, not necessarily for me, for his technical ability, but his ability to imagine, yeah, sure. something yeah, like that, yeah, or yeah. to imagine mm. the Macintosh computer, mm. you know, the interface mm. that it had. And uh, we were at the uh, Patrick Cavanaugh Poetry Center mm. uh, for their weekend, their poetry weekend. They had a man there who. Uh, is a uh, a songwriter and he works for the Late Late Show. He's the head of the the band for the Late Late oh, Show yeah, here right, in Ireland. Yeah, I'm yeah, trying yeah. to think of his name and I'm embarrassed. Yeah. I can't think of his name. He's a very funny and very mm. bright guy. But he did write it. Had a song which he performed, which was. Now we're getting really to the Irish part of this and my own ancestry being Irish. He really felt the Irish culture has sort of been built around the idea of no for a long time. Yeah. The yeah. authority is saying, no, no, yeah, no. Yeah, is this? Yeah. And, and now we're talking about this thing that's trying to emerge called the imagination, mm. this, which has with it the concept of some liberation, mm. liberating the possibilities. And then you have a cycle where you have the, the Celtic tiger and then <laughs> the collapse and, and how people deal with that. What's your experience of that idea in Ireland, this, um, this restricting no, this is tradition. This is the way it's done. We better not do this. He had another song called The Safe Pair of Hands, 
We always want to give important things to the safe pair of hands, and he thought that was a disaster. <laughs> it's a great song he wrote. Yeah. Um, if I've understood your, your question properly, I think Ireland is... I think Irish people are very imaginative, but I don't think they like to do that expression of their imagination. As Maybe they do it more than other countries, maybe. But I think it gets channeled in, into, in the wrong way. I, I, think, I think Irish people are very... There's a centrifugal force in, in Irish society that makes everything want to fly apart. Um, and... It's probably because it's an island, it's small, uh, and there's just not enough room for all these people with all these different ideas. So, you know, if you've got a big idea, oh, emigrate to America or go to England or somewhere. Um, and, and that's probably worked, or it's a dysfunctional sort of way for so many years. Um, I, I know from being even involved in very small committees and things like that, as soon as I sit down in a committee in Ireland, um, everybody has their own idea and they're not prepared to compromise whatsoever. <laughs> and it's like, oh my God, you know, <laughs> the whole idea of a, a committee is that you can work together as a team and have, have an idea collectively and it'll work. But I think we're a bit too, bit, well, maybe not, it's a good thing, but it's a bad thing. I, I think we, we just misdirected. We, we're imaginative as a nation, but we're not necessarily, I don't think we channeled a lot of that energy in the right sort of way. So when I go on about, say, things like the health service or that, I mean, I don't have the answers, of course, but like, there's got to be a lot of people there who are, are, who really do have the answers, but maybe they don't get the opportunity to really voice them. And maybe they don't have the self-confidence to, to voice them. They don't have the, you know, and that's what freedom is about, is that people should be able to voice their opinion. You now nobody's not letting them do it, but, uh, you know, it's a democratic country. It's a very democratic country, but I just think... But for so long, they truly weren't allowed to think that. And first it was the British, and then it was the church. Yeah, 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 yeah. I I think it was, you know, we'll keep you... We'll have things work in an orderly way, Mm. but you cannot express these things. Now to try to find institutions that are viable and sustainable that allow for innovation yeah, yeah. Uh, is the great challenge I think I see in Ireland on this trip. Yeah, yeah, I, I, I think so. Um, I think it's, look, sometimes I don't read the paper enough. Um, maybe I'm out of touch. I don't live in a city. You, you see where I live. I'm, <laughs> if there's the middle of nowhere I'm, I'm in Ireland, if there's anywhere far enough away from anywhere else, that, that's, I'm here. Um, surrounded by bogs. Surrounded by bogs, yeah. Uh, <laughs> but now we have a very low population density here. And um, yeah, it, it's, it's, you do get kind of cut off from reality. Um, I know if you're on the East Coast or living in Dublin, you're going to be much more engaged maybe. Um, and well, let's say you're, you're in this business and mm-hmm. I don't want to belabor this. You're making violins. You're mm-hmm. also trading in some used violins and doing repairs and setups and yeah, you know, all that it takes yeah, yeah, to yeah. to make it mm-hmm. financially as a real livelihood. Um, where does the state come in on all that in terms of is it a is it a positive thing? Is it is it a and I don't know how much into the weeds you want to get about this. Mm-hmm. Where does that work for you as a well business person? Um, I suppose. I've never really looked for state aid. Um, I'm not, I don't, 
I think a lot of state aid is kind of geared more towards making sure people get employed. So unless I was going to employ somebody, mostly not interested. Now, I'm probably being a bit unfair. I, I wouldn't um, be very well versed in that. Uh, it doesn't mean that if you're not, if you're starting a, a business um, that, that you won't get help, you, you, you will. Um, I, I've been lucky in other respects, shall I say, uh, where I've been able to access capital and, um, you know, other facilities that have been able to help my business. And I haven't had to rely on state. But uh, I, I, there, there is a lot going for, for people starting businesses and people who've been unemployed for a long time, if they want to try and start a business to do the schemes that will enable them to, to um, you know, get state aid or, or, or at least draw, uh, the, you know, the, what they call the dole or, you know, social welfare and then still do a certain amount of work and things like that. So... You know, I mean, they only announced the other day that we've had this, we've reached a point where we've the, the lowest unemployment levels in the country for a long time, and even I think lower than before the the, the recession hit. So I think that's very positive, and you know, some people are definitely doing the right things, and I mean, politicians, believe it or not. <laughs> so, you well, know, um, is there any? Sort of uh, idea of violin, uh, Irish violin makers collectively being promoted in other markets, other countries. Is there any collective effort around that? Or is it just such a small um, thing in Ireland? I think making? it's a small thing. I think there is, there is in a very small way, but I mean, you're talking about very small numbers. I mean, you're talking about a handful of people that are, are I, that I would regard as being sufficiently competent to engage the international market. Um, I'm not even sure at the stage that I'd include myself, but there are some good makers and they, they, they do seem to be getting on well enough. Um, I think they are pals together, which is good. Um, I, like I say, I live in, <laughs> in the middle of nowhere, so <laughs> um, I don't know these guys very well, but I, you know, I'd, I'd have confidence in them as makers. I think they're good makers. And I don't know if they get much work from abroad or not some of them do um i think some of them sell through london and, and that kind of thing so do you ever um, get together i haven't no mm-hmm. um it's not it's not particularly i, I would like to it's there's just, no I, federation or um i don't think there is no but like uh, we have a violence yeah there should of america. be really there really should be right um, here we're, we're thinking this up active imagination the violence yeah, yeah. side of ireland oh i think there should be but um you know, all these things take big effort. And with a small community, it doesn't necessarily mean that it would be um, something that would work. I don't know. Honestly, it'd be like one of your committees again. Everybody would have a different idea. <laughs> it could be. It could be, yeah. Especially if I'm on it. Well, you know, I, I think of uh, how many Irish people or people of Irish descent live in other places. Oh. And there is something deeply appealing about Ireland to these people. Uh, I know I speak personally. Mm. You know, I, I'm bringing back an Irish scarf. You know, that was made in Ireland. Now mm. it was maybe made in a factory. It wasn't made in some croft or you know some small cottage someplace. I know that, but it's made in Ireland, and I'm bringing it back to my best friend, and I'm thrilled to give it to him. Right? It's a little bit of yeah. Ireland. Yeah. I would think. Um, I know I was in a violin shop in San Francisco. And we went back in the shop, and this is a Jay Ifshin shop, which is a very large, mm. very successful shop. And he was showing some violins they were working on, and suddenly he pulled one up, and he said, 
well, look at this. We opened it up. It was made in Ireland. Oh, and uh, yeah, and I, we should look into who made it. But it had in honor of, and the year you said of the French, the the uprising was, uh, when was that, 98? Yeah. Okay. So it says in honor of the uprising of 98, and it's dated 1898. But in point of fact, he said no, but it was really referring to is 1798. That's yeah. what this yeah. is being yeah. said inside Sounds the violin. Like, yeah. It's all handwritten in the mm. violin. Well, being Irish or, you know, Irish descent, of all the other violins there, and he has Guarneri, genuine Guarneri violins there and Strads. And, I mean, he has a lot of uh, a lot of great instruments and great bows. I, was, I went out of that building more intrigued with that violin. There's a mystical connection there. And so... Yeah. I'm just saying this out loud, thinking it in real time. I would think that marketing of violins made by Irish makers would would strike a chord with people, mm. seriously, if they understood, you know, and it, it came through, a, felt like we're going to be looking at decent violins and that they could compete on the stage with what's coming out of Cremona. I mean, there's 150 violin makers in Cremona. They all went to mm. the violin school in Cremona. But they're marketed, you know, as violins from Cremona, of course. But I think there is really something there. Mm. There quite possibly is. To the Irish. We'd have to make a lot of violins. So. <laughs> Sounds like a lot of work. I know, <laughs> don't think I'd be interested in that. If it ever took off, it'd be a little too much work. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so very much. Really Thank appreciate you it. very much, Joe. It's been a very pleasurable experience. Let's listen now to Carrie Fiddler, Jerry Harrington, play a tune on one of Mark's violins. The name of the tune is The Flower of the Flock. Thank you for listening to Rosin the Bow, an audio journey through the world of the violin family. Rosin the Bow is produced by Joe and Paula McHugh in the studios of the Raven Radio Theater. Our theme music was arranged and performed by the string quartet, The Fretless. For more information about the Rosin the Bow project and to hear additional podcasts, please visit our website, rosinthebow.org. 
Mark and I would also like to thank two remarkable visionaries, Tom Dolan and Sandy Lloyd. It was their dream to restore the Belmont Mill and convert it into a place where artists such as Mark could do their work. Without such patrons, the ability of the arts to enrich our lives would surely fail. And I'll finish with a quote from Mary Ann Williamson. We may have bad weather in Ireland, but the sun shines in the hearts of the people, and that keeps us warm. Thank you.